Peace, peace, everyone. It's your girl, Sequoia Blue. We have a special guest in here today. We have Dave Combs. And Dave Combs is a songwriter, photographer, entrepreneur, and author with four decades of experience writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of scolding, relaxing, instrumental piano music. Oh, I love it. Soothing. So, soothing. Soothing. You said scolding. <laughs> That's me. Piano's relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, how did you get? So, how and when did you write your first song? What? How did you uh, come about that? Well, Rachel's song was the first song I ever wrote, and believe it or not, I was 33 years old before I wrote my first song. I know it's hard to believe because I grew up in a family that loved music. I was around, I was born, I probably listening to music. My mother and father both played the piano. My grandmother Combs, she played an instrument called an auto harp, which uh, I know we're on audio only, but there's an instrument that she loved to play. Let me play just a, a, a tone of it for you so that you can uh, hear what it sounds like. But it was. Well, see, it's, it's a stringed instrument where you push the keys down and it plays chords. But mm -hmm. uh, and Mother Maybell made this kind of famous back in the early 1900s. That was one of her favorite instruments with the, the Johnny Cash folks back in the mountains of Tennessee and Western, southwestern Virginia, that area. So it's an old timey instrument. Well, I heard my grandma play that and sing hymns and, and play and sing for from since I can remember. So I grew up around music all my life, but it was I was 33 years old before I wrote my first song. And Sequoia, I didn't even really sit down to write it. I sat down at my piano like I normally do when I got home from work after a hard day's work, sit down at my piano to relax and play something. Well, this particular evening in January of 1981, I sat down and played this tune. Didn't think anything about it. It was just a beautiful song that I just played. It came to me as I was playing it, and I didn't even think of it as writing a song. And then a couple of days later, my wife Linda comes home from work, and she says, what is the name of this song that I have stuck in my head all day long? I've been humming it. And she hummed a little bit of it, and I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. It's just a, something that I just made up. Well, she got all excited and said, well, have you written it down? I said, no, I've, I've got it in my mind. It's not going anywhere. And she said, no, no you better write it down because something happened to you. I wouldn't be able to remember it. And so you need to write it down. So I did. Well, that was in January of 81. Two years later, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And they asked me and Linda to be her godparents. And so we're sitting there in the church at her christening service. And it's just us and the family and the minister. And up at the front of the church is this baby grand piano sitting right in the middle of the platform. Well, after the formal part of the service is over, I punched Linda and I said, you know that song that we've been trying to come up with a name for all these last couple of years? I think it would be a good time now to play it in this as part of this service. And she said, wow, that's a great idea. So I went up to the family and the minister and I said, would you all mind if I played a, another, a song on the piano over here? And they said, oh, sure. So they sat back down and I went over to the piano and sat down and I started playing this song, someone I've been playing for two years with no name. 
and I got most of the way through the song and I could hear some sniffles in the crowd and you know, I was beginning to have some teardrops coming down my eye, my eyes too because you know a christening service for a sweet little baby girl is that's sweet anyway I mean it's it tugs at your heartstrings right mm-hmm. well uh, it, as I finished playing the song I looked over to where little Rachel was in the arms of her mother and I said from now on this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor and that sequoia is how Rachel's song got its name and that was the beginning of a long journey for me with that song it 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 began to take on a life of its own once it got its name Rachel's song i got it recorded in as a demo in Nashville Tennessee 3 years later i was in Nashville yeah I, i was doing i was still working in my day job at, at western electric at the time which was a subsidiary of AT&T and i was having to work during the week all week long in nashville tennessee at one of our plants there and linda said well while you're in nashville why don't you go find a studio and a musician let's get a professional demo recording made of rachel's song something we could have for fun and give it you know for the family of rachel to enjoy and so forth i said okay so one evening i jump in my rental car and i go to downtown nashville looking for a studio I drive over into the part of town they call they call it uh, Music Square and it's really two square blocks of everything in there is music. It's got the Country Music Hall of Fame and the RCA Studios and BMI headquarters, ASCAP headquarters, everything musical in there. And I'm going down one side street in the middle of Music Square that's called Roy Acuff Place. And at the end of the street, there's this big building with a barn-shaped roof to it and out front is a water wheel like it was a real water wheel that they'd moved from some mill someplace and on the side of the building it said the music mill and i thought well that's encouraging so i pulled in the parking lot and sure enough i saw through the glass door there was a man sitting at a desk in the lobby so okay went over to the door knocked on it he came unlocked it and opened it and says hi i'm george clinton can i help you and I, and that's not it's a different George Clinton than, than you're thinking about this is this is a recording engineer in Nashville Tennessee by the name of George Clinton and his he's since passed away bless his heart but he was very popular they even did a full page spread on George when he passed away in the newspaper that's how popular he was now i didn't know that at the time all i knew was he was a man in, in the behind the desk yeah So I said I told George what I was looking for. I said I'm looking <clears throat> for a studio where I can get a demo recording made of a song. And he said, "Well, come on in. This is a studio." And says I as I walked in the door, I looked over to my left and up on the lobby walls like a two-story lobby, a giant picture of Glenn Campbell. And then here in front of me was a great big picture of the group Alabama. And then there's the Forrester sisters and there's gold records and platinum records all around the walls and and I thought, "Oh, <laughs> this is a first-class place. I have really landed it." So, anyway, I said, "Well, George, I've never seen a studio." He said, "Well, let me show you this one. There's nobody recording right now. Let's go back in the studio A. The the, you know, the big one." <clears throat> and so we went in there and the, the big recording room where the musicians stay. Great big room. You could you could fit an orchestra in that room and probably has it probably had recorded orchestras in that room had a great big concert 9 foot concert grand piano over in the corner and 
uh, glass enclosed rooms around it. And then over here's the control room. And George says, let's go in there. I want to show you where all the equipment is, where the magic happens. So he opens this big, thick, uh, soundproof door, about eight inches thick, and opens it up, and we go into the control room. And if you've ever been in a studio, you know, one of the main things in there is the console. It's an impressive piece of equipment. It's got all those sliders and dials and switches and everything. And it was it looked like it's about eight feet long. I later found out it had like 32 tracks on this thing. It was a, it was a big console. And they had tape recorders all around the, the, the wall and big monitor speakers in there. It was impressive, let me tell you. And I said, well, Gordon, how much does a place like this rent for? And he says, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. Now, remember, this is before you were born. This is 1986. Yeah. <laughs> a little more back then. Yeah. In today's dollars, $125 an hour is probably over $400 an hour. Oof. So that's a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> and he said, plus engineer. So I thought, uh, he probably saw that I was kind of downtrodden at that point, like, well, I can't afford this. He said, don't worry, Dave. He says, the fellow that owns this studio owns a tiny little studio across the street in a little small, what used to be a rent house, a little two-bedroom house they converted into a studio. He said, and it's $15 an hour plus engineer. I said, okay, <laughs> I can do that. That's more like it. He said, That's, it's, it's perfectly good enough to do what you need to need me done. I said, well, now what I need is an in, uh, is a musician that's a professional musician to play my song for me. And he said, uh, what kind of song is it? I said, well, it's just an instrumental piano piece. And he said, wow, no, just the right person for you. His name, Gary Prim, P-R-I-M. He said, I go to church with him. He's a wonderful session musician. Everybody in Nashville loves Gary Prim. He's just a great keyboard player. Absolutely fabulous. Let me look up his phone number. So we went back to his desk in the lobby, got his, he looked up his phone number for me, wrote it on a piece of paper. And I hightailed it back to my hotel room and called Gary Prim. <clears throat> you may say, well, why didn't you call him on a cell phone? Well, this is 1986. Cell phones hadn't even been invented. The internet hadn't even been invented. Everything was landlines. And so I had to go to my hotel room to call Gary. I called him, got his answering machine. 30 minutes later, he calls me back. And he says, uh, this is Gary Prim. What can I do for you? I said, well, George Clinton says that you could probably help me out. And he's all oh, anything for George. He said, I'd be happy to. Tell me what you need. And I said, well, I've got this little instrumental song, and I just need a demo recording made of it. Yeah, I can, I can do that, he said. Just send me a recording of you playing it so I know what it sounds like, and send me a lead sheet. And I said, okay, but what's a lead sheet? I didn't know the lingo of the Nashville music people. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's no problem. He said, it's just the melody and the chords written down on a piece of paper. I said, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So got back home and I put that together and sent it off to Gary. And then two weeks later, on August the 22nd, 1986, Friday evening at 6 o'clock p.m., I met Gary at that little studio across the street from the music mill. He comes in with his, his synthesizer under his arm and he sets it up and sets over to the, the little baby grand piano in the, in the uh, studio and he starts warming up a little bit. <clears throat> and I go back in the control room with the engineer and pretty soon he's ready to record. So we 
pushed the record and start playing. And he starts playing Rachel's song. And <clears throat> now remember, I had never heard my music played by anybody else but me. Mm-hmm. Only arrangement I'd ever heard. So you can imagine how surprised and excited I was to hear mm-hmm. my own song played by a professional, wonderful piano player. Well, I was blown away. Well, he got about halfway through the song, and then he stops, and he said, I, I can do better than that. So we rewound the tape machine and started over. Second time through, he nailed it all the way to the very end, and I am just not believing what I'm hearing. And if he had stopped right there and said, that's it, Dave, I would have been ecstatic and happy, and that'd been fine. He's, but he said, nope, I, I, I want to do some more with this song. This is a great song, and I want to make it really special. So he said, I'm going to take and I'm going to add some electric piano part on my synthesizer to match the piano part on the real piano. Also, he sets up, puts his headset on so he can hear the first part in his headphones. And then he starts playing that the electric piano part along with it. And he nailed it. Now, remember, this is there was no what we call a click track. It was not very precisely rhythm. It was very uh, legato and and or rubato where you just the feel of the song is as you're playing it along so it speeds up slows down gets louder softer as you feel it he nailed it with the electric piano part just like he did it on the piano part wow which is the mark of a very professional session studio musician by the way (laughs) and then he says well i think this song needs some bottom so let's add some low strings So he switches the sound on his synthesizer to strings and he plays some low strings along with himself. And it needs some top, so let's put in some high strings. So he plays along some high strings along with it. Sound like I'm beginning to sound like an orchestra. And then he says, well, you know, right in the middle, and by the way, he changed keys. I played it all in the key of C. He played two verses and choruses in the key of C. And then the third time through, he bumped it up a half a step to Mm -hmm. C mark. And when you hear the demo recording, and the re- or the real recording, and which is, by the way, the same recording, you'll hear it instantly go up a half step. And it just made it really have a lot more energy, and it was just a, a I, I call it a musical surprise, where you're not expecting it, but when it happens, it catches your attention, and you go, wow. So he did that, and he said, I think I need to add some horns in there to give it a little more punch. So two more tracks, and... and got horns so we've used up about eight tracks to record the rachel song comes in the control room we all sit there and the engineer mixes all that down to where it sounds balanced together sort of and we listen to it the whole thing through and i am just blown away i can't believe what i'm hearing but gary says i like it i think that's that's it so i wrote him a check for the agreed upon amount said goodbye to gary and as he left and stayed there, and the engineer mixed the whole thing down to two-track stereo for me, made me some cassette tapes and my master tape, and I'm done. I've got, I'll come in with a piece of paper, and I come out with a masterpiece. It's just, it was... That's amazing. It, it really was totally amazing, Sequoia. It was like meant to be, like a law of attraction thing. I mean, just the way everything flowed, the story yes. is meant yeah. to be. And, at right. that studio, at that time. Yeah. And what, what are the odds that I meet one person, get the George Clinton, who is a good friend of Gary? You know, th- just meeting those people, looking back on it, that was no accident. It was, mm-hmm. it was meant to be. And mm-hmm. it just, especially now that I know over the past 40 years, how much this has changed my life. 
and not only my life, but the lives of other people as well. Because Gary and I have since then gone back to the studio and recorded over 170 songs, 14 albums worth. Wow, 14 and albums. 14 albums over the period of about 14 years. We'd go back about one week every year. I'd go to Nashville, re rent a studio, the whole studio this time, and rent it for a week. And Gary would come in, we'd record 14, 15, 16, 17 songs, whatever I had written or was going to record. And every year come out with a brand new album. So that happened from 88 was the, the year that we recorded the first album. And then mm -hmm. from then till about 2001, every year was a, a, a new album. And uh, it's just been a remarkable journey. I, I, Gary was a really, really, I was 30, let's see, I was 33 when I wrote Rachel's song, so I was about 36 when I first met Gary. Well, he was in his 20s. He was a really young man. Oh, wow. Newly married, had a new, just shortly after that, had a new little baby, little baby girl. And, and so I've got to see Gary and his wife and raise two wonderful kids as well. And, you know, Gary now, is, he's more like family. He, they are just wonderful, wonderful friends and family. And uh, and his music skills have not, they've gotten even better over the years. He, You go in Nashville and ask any studio musician, you know Gary Prim? Oh yes, everybody knows Gary Prim. He is, he plays for all the big stars. He, they want him to play. If they got a piano part or a keyboard part, he's one of the people that they will come and say, Gary, can you work on this session for us? And uh, he's he's a great musician. But it oh. that relationship between Gary and me has been so wonderful. It changed my life because mm -hmm. of, I, I was able to quit my job at AT&T yeah, in 1992. After 22 and a half years with the company, I finally had uh, my music business was exceeding my income at AT&T AT by about double. Oh. So, it, was, it had really took off, and, and how that happened is another interesting thing, and, and I, I tell all the stories about how that happened in my book. It's called Touched by the Music, and it's uh, about 254 pages of stories about how I went from one song to 14 albums, and it's, uh, it's just really been a, a quite a journey and quite an inspiration. If you're an entrepreneur, and it's not just about music, a lot of the principles that I applied through my music business, they apply to whether you're selling a product or you have a service you're selling, whatever entrepreneurial venture you're in, certain principles apply. Like you said, that the law of attraction, which my friend Jack Canfield, is, oh. he loves to talk about that a lot. Now, Jack Canfield wrote this book called uh, the, uh, the Success Principles. And, oh. and I, Jack Canfield helped me so much with my book uh, I got to know Jack about a, a couple of years ago and I spent a lot of time with him and he, he loves Rachel's song, by the way. He, he absolutely flipped out over Rachel's song <laughs> and he loved my stories because I have gotten letters and notes from people all over the world, over 50,000 of them, about my music. And when Jack heard that, he said, man, you're sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> You know, oh, wow. he co-wrote the, the books, you know, the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Yep, that's the one I read. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, those are books full of stories of yeah. really inspiring stories by other people. 
Well, he, when he heard I had 50,000 letters, he said, man, <laughs> I guess he was thinking another chicken soup for the piano player, chicken soup for the music. So <laughs> I need that for music artists because a lot of us out here, you know, we, I want to, I would love to do music full time and I'm 33, you know, right. And I've only got one album under me, but you just inspired me because I think a lot of times people think that to be a singer, you have to be with Capitol Records and they're all over TV, but you know, just listening to you, it's like you can get there a different way. You yeah. know, have your freedom too to be creative. Well, we are so blessed today to have this technology. And uh, let's see, where are you located, Sequoia? I'm in Vegas. You're in Vegas. Well, yes. you won't believe this, but I got up this morning at three two thirty a.m. to get on a podcast with a young lady in Germany. Wow. So my day started today really early, but, but it was, she and I were talking just like you and I are. And she's, I don't know how many, eight or 9,000 miles away, you know, and it was no delay. It was just like she was in the room with me and here you're in Vegas and I'm in North Carolina, yet we're talking like we're right beside of each other. <laughs> and the technology that we have that enables us to talk and spread our music through like through YouTube videos or through any of the if you're just audio only you can put it on spotify and iHeartRadio and, and all of these platforms where you can stream it these days um, and it doesn't matter where you are you can whether you're in australia halfway around the world or right next door it doesn't matter so we have the technology to where you're not relying on the big record companies or somebody else to get your music around the world now you do have to have a way of distinguishing yourself from all the millions of other people that are trying to do the same thing you are. Yeah. And, and that applies to podcasts. You know, there's only about 3 million podcasts around the world and growing. And there are no telling how many songwriters and people that create music and, or even just perform other people's music. All the musicians, they've got a studio in their laptop that is far superior to that big studio that I was describing a while ago that only had 32 tracks. Well, on your laptop, you can have 132 tracks if you want to. It's yep. it, it's no big deal. So Man. we are so blessed to live in the we time are. that we live and, uh, and to be able to do what we do to spread either the messages we want to get out or the music that we want to get out as well. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, I think because I think sometimes it's like with music streaming and stuff, it's like artists are trying to find their way to get, you know, it's like a they're like a needle in a haystack trying to find a way to get that income to where it's like, okay, I can focus on just doing this. And it's like you're paying all these playlist uh, 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 companies and stuff to add it to playlists. But then you don't know if it's real. I think the best way is kind of I know it's technology forward now but sometimes it's like you gotta go kind of old school just to get that fan base you gotta kind of go out there and perform and not just cover songs because cover songs are great but you're not gonna you're not gonna build a real career with that and you gotta find a way to perform your stuff even if it's starting events and and you're just you you created your own event you know and then people can go and go on spotify and buy you know stream your music or buy your uh your music right there mm -hmm. you know um because I think vinyl records are coming back out now too. So it's it's just important for artists to understand that they still can do this and, and you're, you're proof of that. Um, well, there's another aspect of this that is very, very important and that is publicity. You uh, can appreciate the fact that 
the more people that hear about your music and then eventually do hear your music. And that's, I, to me, that was the secret. Telling people about my stories about music is one thing, but when they actually hear the songs in the right environment, of course, not in a, you know, a busy restaurant somewhere where everything's noisy, but you need to be in, a, in your home where it's quiet and sit and listen to the subtleties of the music and let it speak to you. It will if you really, really listen. And so finding venues where people can actually listen to your music in the right environment is so critical. And whether that's in a, a, a small little concert that you put together with friends or at a small venue someplace, a little small club or a restaurant, or you know, it just depends on where you are and what your skills are. If you're a performer, a singer, or a performer on the keyboard or another guitar or any other instrument, you got to find places to practice your craft and and get it out there. You have to get it out in front of people. And that is a secret. And one of the, th the things that will help you is if you can get some publicity. Let me tell you about what happened to me in 1994. Many of your listeners will have heard of the magazine Guideposts. It's a little magazine that's been around for, I don't know when it was, the, no, I think Norman Vincent Peale probably was the starter of this. It was a oh, long wow. time ago. But it's a magazine full of wonderful, inspiring stories. Real life, real people stories. And the stories are usually written in first person. It's They're telling their own stories, not somebody else telling it for them. So in this magazine, and this was in 1994, the September issue has an article that I wrote called Two-Part Harmony. And that's me sitting at the piano there. And uh, it's the story that I just told, or some, most of the story that I just told you about how I wrote Rachel's song and how it led to the point of me being able to quit my job at AT&T to do what God put me on this planet to do, which was write and produce music. And this little magazine back in 1994, went out to about 2 million people. That was the subscriber base for Guideposts. And even today, it's it's electronic now. With you, you subscribe online and you get a PDF copy. And I think you still can order a hard copy. But 2 million people got this little magazine in September of 1994. Well, guess what happened? At the back of the magazine, they put in the little family section back here, the family room, there's a little piece in there about me and my wife. That's me and my wife, Linda, down here. And a little blurb about, about the background of me. And it put my address and phone number. What? And it said, you know, if you want to find out more about Dave's music, here's his phone number and address. Tapes are $10 and CDs are 14 Well, this hit the street. And if I, if I had the, my calendar, I could tell you the day and the minute that it hit the street because... My phone started ringing, my 800 number. I had an 800 number at the time, for, still do, the same number. But my 800 number started ringing. And you pick it up, I just got my Guidepost magazine, and I want to order one of those CDs, or I want to order a cassette tape, and get, and I, I love the story, and I want. I just got to have that song. Okay, so I take, take an order, put the phone down, ding, 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 back right back. Hello, I want to order. You could not put the, don't take your hand off the receiver. There's somebody at the phone on the other end. You pick oh it up, it didn't even have to ring. And I mean, it was constant. 
I had to hire two people to help me just answer the phone. Oh my goodness. And two days later, <laughs> this is really funny, my mailman comes ringing my front door. I go to the front door and here he stands with this great big canvas bag, too heavy for him to pick up. He says, Dave, what have you done? <laughs> he said, the bag is full of mail addressed to you. Jeez. I said, really? Yep. And he said, I, I said, well, I just wrote this little article in Guidepost magazine. I guess people are writing to me and sending me every one of those little letters at either a check or a $10 bill or something in it that said, I want one of those cassette tapes or the CDs of Rachel's song. Wow. 10,000 of those letters in two weeks. Wow. So See, that was publicity. That was public. I didn't pay a nickel to get that article in this magazine. There's another mm -hmm. whole story about how that happened, which I, I tell that story in my book. But how I got that article in the magazine is another little miracle that happened. But I didn't have to pay a thing. And it's a publicity like that is is worth a million times of advertising. It's just it's just worth it's it's hard to describe what it's worth. So if you can do something with your music and your story about your music, you know, your life story is that's inspiring to somebody. Tell that. Call your local cable company and say, you know, I've got a great story idea for you on the, the local news. Come over and let's talk about this. And and chances are, if you help them put this story idea in their mind, they'll say, well, because they're always looking for neat, inspiring stories. They'll come over, bring the camera crew and say, well, let's sit down, Sequoia, and let's, let, let's, let's, let's interview you about your music. And you can talk, tell your stories. And, and who knows? It might get picked up by the national network. And next thing you know, boom, you're all over the whole country. Wow, that's so, so inspiring. It's it just, it just think outside the box and don't don't think of yourself as being limited by where you are, who you are, or anything. You know, let your personality and your God-given gifts, get them out there. Take action, and as you said, that law of attraction will kick in big time. It, it works. It does absolutely works. And you, you get the right mindset, the right vision, put yourself in front of the right people, good things are going to happen. Yes, I totally agree. That's so inspiring. Do you, um, and also, do you feel like the streaming services have messed up income from art for artists? Like, compared to back in the day, you can just, you know, you can't just street, you know, uh, take it from, what was it called? LimeWire back at one time was LimeWire and Napster. Like you, you know, and even now people are still stealing it from, you know, uh, you know, Spotify or some people know how to take the songs and stuff. And then you're like, well, dang, I, you know, I didn't really get much for that. And this person put it in some show. You don't know where it is. You know, mm. it's just so different now. Do you think artists are, are losing or? I do. And it's very frustrating because I get, fortunately, I, my music has been around long enough to where I've, I've transitioned from cassette tapes to CDs to digital downloads to streaming. And I'm a technology person. And so as soon as the, the World Wide Web came around in 1994 or five, I had my own website and I programmed it myself. I, I put it up there before anybody knew what WWW stood for. And so I was in the technology early. And as soon as the digital world came in, now this, I have to back up and say Napster was the worst crook around and stole all of our music back in the late 90s. You may have heard about this where they really were giving away all this intellectual property for free. 
They'd take one of my albums, put it out there and say, hey, teenager, you don't have to pay $15 for this album. Come on, Napster, and we'll just give it to you. Well, giving things away for free is not a good business model, let me tell you. You cannot make a living giving things away for free. So, what happened was Napster basically just killed the value and the perceived value of intellectual property of music. Because the, the young folks didn't think of it having any value at all. I just can get it for free. I'll just play it. I'll just take it. Well, it took the courts a while to get onto that and basically undo that. But the damage had been done in terms of the value of our intellectual property. No longer could you sell a, a, a CD for $15, very many of them, because you just wouldn't sell many. There, people were wanting it, expecting it for free. Yeah. But along comes Apple iTunes. And mm -hmm. that kind of saved the day, sort of, because they were selling songs, then you could download a song for 99 cents, of which me, the artist, I would get maybe 67, 70 cents of the 99. They kept the difference. Well, that's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. But still, that was uh, not a whole lot. And, and there weren't that many people downloading and it took a while for downloading to catch on. And then by the time downloading caught on, streaming kicked in. You know, you, mm -hmm. had, you had Pandora begin with their streaming service. And then you have Spotify now that is really kind of the, the, the giant streamer in the whole world. Yeah. And then there's all the others. There's Amazon Music, there's Apple Music, there's uh, you know, tons of places that you can stream music. But, and, I, and I've got all my music on all those platforms, all, all my 170 plus songs out there. Mm -hmm. you, you can find, on, find me on any platform and play it. The problem, however, is, and I do get royalties from those streams, but I, I would, in, in, I'm gonna do a little quiz for your listeners. How much money do you think I get from each stream of a song that I wrote? I'm going to let you think about that a second, and I'm going to tell you the answer. I know it's a half a cent or something. <laughs> well, I, would, I would love to have a half a cent. It is <laughs> 0.2 pennies on average per stream. Now, that okay. means it has, to stream, it has to stream five times for me to get one penny yep. of royalty. Now, it is, you, you, then you figure up, well, let's suppose I want to make a living at this. And you pick a number that you ought to have for your income that you want to make as a living. Even, the, even pick a ridiculously low number like $25,000. Well, how many streams do you think you'd have to have to have an income in a year of $25,000? You can do the math. Just divide it by 0 .002. And they'll see how many millions of times that a song would have to be played for you to get $25,000. And probably, it may be even a billion, I'm not sure. Yes, yeah, ridiculous. So, that, and to answer you, that's a long answer to your question about are the musicians being paid fairly for their property, intellectual property? And I have a clear answer that is absolutely no. But, uh, and it's, it's a yeah. problem that is so broad that uh, it's, there's too many players in the, in the game that have uh, their fingers in the pie, so to speak. You know, there's the big music companies, there's the, mm -hmm. there's the media company, the people that own the Pandora, that own the radio stations and all these places. They want their, by the time they, everybody gets their cut, there's nothing left over for the musician that wrote the song. <laughs> 
we're the ones that all the work. And you're, yeah, we're, without us, they, they wouldn't have anything to play. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, anyway, I didn't mean to get on my soapbox on that. No, you're fine. I mean, this is great information, you know, for some of the listeners too, because they, some people just started music, want to learn and need to know that. Um, so like, I think that's now why artists tour so much. You have to tour, 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 you know, and, and that's because of the streams aren't as much. So even big celebrities now like Mariah Carey are saying it and all of them. So yeah, yeah you just gotta, but as an independent artist is different because you can kind of go on, uh, do events and throw on things. So you don't have to be stuck on tour all the time and, and right. you know, just tired, can't see your family. So mm-hmm. I think that's one good thing. Yes. <laughs> You know, and, uh, the, the the life of a musician is is a really tough life, and you know, there's been books and movies made about the the life of these music stars and uh, that have made millions. You know, you all of us know the stories of you know Elvis Presley and you know all the big name stars that that have had their tough life. You know, uh, uh, Johnny Cash, his story. You know, oh gosh, what a what a what a up and down story he had. You know. Uh, and, you know, I've met Roseanne Cash, his daughter, and she's a sweet lady. She's a great songwriter and a singer. But um, anyhow, the uh, but that life of a of a musician back then was really tough, and today it's it's equally tough as well because you got to to and and COVID didn't make it any easier when it basically oh man it shut down all the the concerts and here yeah. the wonderful musicians at home for a year and hadn't hadn't been able to perform anywhere. So it, uh, it's a tough life, but um, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to in- discourage people because yeah, no. the the main thing is to create the the music that you want to create and get it out in front of as many people as you can in as many venues as you can. And trust me, you will not be able to control where all it's going to go and what the end product will be. But the chances are that perhaps some good things will happen that you probably have no control over but it, if you don't have it out there it'll never happen but yeah you you have to get it out there and sometimes good things happen and connections get made and some really fabulous person you know let's say dolly parton hears your song and says well i want to help you out and do something with this you know like an oprah winfrey with her she does with books oh yeah <laughs> somebody gets a book that's endorsed by oprah winfrey it's over. It's all <laughs> over for that. But you know, that's like the publicity from my guidepost article. You know, once you get something like that, it can explode. But you just have to not give up, but keep at it, and also be realistic about it. That uh, you're not going to expect uh, fa- to be a famous person overnight or have your fabulous success overnight. It's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, I totally agree on that. And just enjoying the journey, you know, and. You know, some some I think that some artists can consider entrepreneurship too because it can be another income while they're pursuing their you know dreams. You know, because mm-hmm. that's what that's what I you know that's what I do. I have other businesses because I know that I'm an entrepreneur first. You know, before a singer, I want to do you know I want to be able to have my own time and stuff. So I think that that's that's important for artists to consider too. Is saying, okay, let me have another side hustle going on. If I don't want to be at a regular job, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's good too for starters. Um, and how did you decide to market your music into gift shops? That's interesting. Well, now this was back in the mid 1980s when we had, there were, and there still are a ton of gift shops in tourist towns all over the country. 
And I had approached the big box stores about selling my music. Back then, there was a store called Record Bar that literally sold records. And I thought that they would just be welcoming me in to sell my music in their store. And that wasn't the case at all. They'd never heard of me, and they were only interested in big promoted names like Michael Jackson and so forth. And I wasn't that kind of person. Besides, mine was only instrumental music. Didn't even have words. So I got nowhere. And I was working still at AT AT&T at the time. And a lady that had her office was right beside mine. She loved Rachel's song. And she said, I have a friend who owns a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. And for those of you that have been to Old Town, it's a really great tourist town across the river from Washington, D.C. And it's full of restaurants and gift shops and great places to just walk around and enjoy yourself. But Leslie had this friend who owned a shop there, and the name of the store was America. She sold everything that you can imagine, red, white, and blue, anything patriotic. And she played she played music in her shop. She played patriotic music, John Philip Sousa and all the, the patriotic songs. Also, Leslie says, I want to give her a CD of Rachel's song. Well, she did. And about two days later, my phone at work rings, and it's Jane that owns the shop. She says, Dave, I've got a problem. Everybody in my store that hears this song playing when it comes on comes over to the cash register and says, Jane, what's that music you're playing? Do you have it for sale? I want to take it home. And she said, I don't have any. And I said, well, maybe we can solve that problem. So we had negotiated a wholesale price. I'd never sold any at wholesale before. This wow. is the be- this is the be- very beginning of my wholesale sale of my music. So we reached an agreement on the price. The retail, let's say a CD was $14 that she'd sell it for. And I said, well, how about $8 for a wholesale price? And then you'll make $6 and I'll make uh, probably about $6 after you take out the cost of the CD. And we'll kind of split the profit that way. So she said, that sounds fair to me. I said, she said, well, can you bring me a box of them tonight? And I said, okay, I can. So after work, I was working in Bethesda, Maryland at the time, and my wife was working downtown in Washington, D.C. And so that night, Linda and I went down to Old Town Alexandria with a box of tapes and CDs and took them to Jane at her, her gift shop. Well, that was great, and so I didn't know what was going to happen. Two or three days later, Jane calls me back and says, Dave, those are all gone. I need some more. How about doubling the order this time? I said, okay. (laughs) So we made that trip down to Old Town Alexandria every week for over a year. She sold thousands of tapes and CDs out of that one little gift shop playing one album. And that was when, now, I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I am a business person. It doesn't take a, a, you know, you don't have to hit me over the head with a two before when I see an opportunity like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty obvious that this was a great business model that I needed to figure out and how to duplicate it. So I took, I I made me a, I'm a, I'm a technology person, so I made me a spreadsheet. And this is back before Microsoft Excel even existed, but we did have something called a spreadsheet that was like the same thing we do today. But I made me a column of, of, for the data for, for Jane's gift shop, how many cassette tapes and how many CDs she'd sold, how much she paid me for them, the wholesale price, how much it cost me for each one of them, subtract the two, and that's my gross profit. 
So down at the bottom was my gross profit dollars for that gift shop and for that period of time. And then I thought, wow, that's a, that was a pretty attractive number. Certainly better than anything I was expecting. And then I said, okay, what if we had one gift shop just like Jane's or similar to it in every state? Let's yes. Just, let's just do 50. So I make another column in my spreadsheet with 50 times column one. Ooh, okay, well that number is interesting at the bottom. I said, okay, let's not get greedy. Let's just say there's five, just five little gift shops in every state. You know, it's a big country that surely there's five. So let's do 250. Third column is 250 times column one. Wow. You come down to the bottom line of the net, the, the gross profit from that. I said, Linda, come over here and look at this. And I pointed out the number to her and I said, you see that number there? That's two to three times what I'm making at work at AT&T. Oh. I said, uh, I think I see what we got to do. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get busy finding 250 more America shops around the country like Jane has. And so that was when I, the entrepreneur part of my brain kicks in and says, okay, mm -hmm. out of the franchise principle, if we've, you study that in MBA school, you know, how school wow. how businesses can grow. So I had to, the principle of duplication. But now I had to figure out where are all these gift shops like Jane located? Yeah. And so I first of all started just calling gift shops in general. I thought, well, maybe uh, any gift shop. And on weekends, Linda and I, I call it shoe leather marketing. We went out to all these tourist towns around Washington, D.C., to Occoquan, Virginia, New Market, uh, Maryland. And when we'd come back home to North Carolina, we'd go up to Blowing Rock, North Carolina, or over into Tennessee, we'd go to Gatlinburg. These are all tourist places that we knew had lots of gift shops. And we'd walk in a shop and I'd say, or I wouldn't say anything, I'd just walk in the door and listen. And if I heard, mm -hmm. if I heard pretty music playing, I knew that probably the, uh, they would be able to play and sell my music in there possibly. So I would approach the owner and give them a sample of my, my music and say, here's my card. And if you like my music and your customers like it, give me a call. And so after uh, doing that for weekend after weekend, you know, I built up my customer base from that one shop to several, several gift shops. And it was uh, about, I guess I probably had about maybe 20 or 25 of them at the time. Wow. And that was beginning to grow. And uh, I was really getting busy on, when I get home at night, my answering machine would be full of calls from gift shops saying, this is so-and-so, send me 25 more, 10 more, whatever of their of my tapes and CDs. Wow. And so I'd spend half the night packing up all the orders and drop them off at the shipping place in the morning on my way to the office. So that was how it started. Now. There's an interesting story that I, I won't go into. It's a long story, so I won't go into it now. But there's a story of how I calculated and found out mathematically where all the tourist towns in the United States are. I did not know where a tourist town was in Arkansas or Missouri or Kansas or California or, or any place other than the places that I had been physically. But I needed to know where those places were, and I found a way with my analytical thinking <laughs> to calculate that. And I tell that story in my book. So if you want to find out how that 
that came about. You can get my book and read about that. But yeah. I did eventually find just tourist towns in the country to call. And I would mm-hmm. call. And before I found the gift shops in tourist towns, I was calling in just any town like Atlanta or even a big city. I'd have to make 30 phone calls to get one prospect. 30, mm-hmm. 29 no's to get one yes. Yeah, this one. Another lesson for entrepreneurs is you got to be persistent. You don't give up just because somebody says no. You just keep going because if you keep know, on. you keep on going, and sooner or later somebody's going to say yes. Well, my once I figured out how to get to just the tourist towns calling, my call rate went from one in twenty, one in thirty to one in five. Wow! Every five phone calls, I would have one. Sometimes even more than that. So that was a huge leap in my, my, and I was able to do it through the use of some what we call today big data and analytics. Mm, yep, uh, analytics. So it's, it's, there's a way to do that, and thank goodness today we have the internet and Google and yeah. places tools to use to to do some targeted marketing. But uh, so I went to over a thousand gift shops, eventually. Wow. And so that was what enabled me to quit my job in 1992. To do my music full time. Oh man, that's a blessing, man. That is so cool. And so, and like now, you're probably well. After that, did you start performing a lot, or do you have to do like tours, or or were you like more so just making money from just online sales? I am. I'm a composer and a producer of the music. Gary Prim is the artist. Yep. Neither of neither Gary nor I have been on a like a tour kind of thing. We. We strictly sold my music through, back then through the gift shop play and sell, and through the word of mouth from people reading about it in guideposts or hearing it on the radio, that kind of thing. And wow. so it wasn't through touring at all. The only time I ever got on a even anything close to a tour was I got to perform Rachel's song and some of my music in St. Louis, Missouri, to a crowd of twenty-six thousand people. Wow, that's an outdoor concert, and I was on the stage with the Letterman, Don McLean, the Association, and George Benson. And oh, the radio station had run a contest. (laughs) You know, radio stations love to run contests, Mm -hmm. and so they they asked their their listeners to tell us who are your most who's your favorite artist. If we could invite somebody to come to St. Louis for a concert, who would you want to come? Well, I get a phone call from the program director at the radio station and when I was at my desk in in Bethesda, Maryland and he says, Dave, uh, we've told me about the contest and he says, and you're one of the winners. I said, oh, really? And that's when he told me, I said, well, who are the others? And that's when he told me about the Letterman and Don McLean and the association and George Benson. I said, wow. <laughs> he said, yeah, we're going to fly you and your wife out here to St. Louis. We're going to I'll put you up in a hotel. We'll put limo limousine out to the, the facility. Treat you like uh, royalty, and you get to play wow. your music. To and we're expecting twenty, tw- more than twenty-five thousand people to show up because it's a free concert. And I'm telling you, that was an unbel- That was almost a surreal experience. Oh my goodness! To stand on the stage and look out there, and here's all these people, elbow to elbow, in their lawn chairs and sitting on blankets on the ground far as the eye could see i mean it was a sea of people oh my god and then they had a, a an autograph tent set up next to the stage so when i finished i go went down to the autograph tent i had to stand there at the autograph tent for over four hours 
getting my picture made and signing autographs for people who had driven hundreds of miles to come and see my performance at that venue. I could not believe it. It was just such an humbling and wonderful experience. I will absolutely never forget it. But, and I'm, Linda and I are still friends with the Letterman. We got to know them that weekend and we've seen them in concert. We had them, uh, we took them to lunch here when they were in town for a concert. And so we, we've kept up with the Letterman. They are a wonderful group of men that, that love to sing and they're so talented. And so, man, they treat their fans like royalty. You, if you want a lesson in how to treat your fans, you take a lesson from the Letterman. They, oh. after a concert at any of the Letterman concert, they will stay around until the last person has shook their hand that wants to and had their picture made with them. Oh, that's so nice of them. Isn't, isn't that incredible? And here they yeah. are, they're, they're super famous. They're, they, they've made millions of dollars from their music. And yet here they are, they're just giving and they, they love their fans, literally. And so uh, wow. they are a, just a wonderful p- group of people. And so I, we, getting to know them was worth that whole concert, I think. <laughs> that is amazing. Man, this is, I mean, everybody's just get your book so they can learn something and, and get inspired because this is this is a great story. And also get, like, get the book for the principles too so you can figure out different ways you can do things, think outside the box. So please yeah. I think I forgot to tell the title of my book is called Touched by the Music. And when you go to my website, you'll see it. My website is real easy to remember. It's just my name, Combs, CombsMusic.com. And when you go there, it's, it's a very simple website. My book's on the left, my CD's on the right. In the middle is a little link that says Play Rachel's Song. And when you play Rachel's Song, you're going to hear the exact recording that I've told about and that was recorded as the demo. It has not been re-altered or mastered or anything it's just it is what it was and you can hear what i heard that first time in 1986. that's amazing yes and i'm also going to add that in the show notes everybody so they can be able to um you know click it and check it out um and before we head out i just have one more question okay um what's a saying or a quote that you go by well um there are lots of quotes and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me but there's one that was written by John Wesley if you do a google on John Wesley and his 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 quotes there's one that says something about do all the the good you can while you can it's every it's a long quote that talks about doing everything you can and all the good you can and to every person you can every opportunity you can while you're in this world and I'm sorry, I don't. I didn't bring a copy of it in front of me. I'd read it to you, but, but you can Google John Wesley, everything you can, and you will find his quote. It's a wonderful quote. But that yeah. one, I, I try to live by as well to, to do everything I can, including these podcasts, and I'll talk to anybody anywhere. As as my wife will say, you know, I think she says, well, you'd talk to a a, a tree if you if it would listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good, though, you know, the confidence you have and stuff, because, you know, for me, having stage fright, you know, certain times and and uh, even having podcast fright and getting over those things, you know, it's it's definitely great to be able to just speak to everybody and not, you know, feel like, oh, I can't do it because of my, you know, my stage fright or podcast fright, whatever. And there's so many people out here that have that issue, you know, public speaking, but just got to do it in spite of <laughs> you got to mm-hmm. talk to everybody. And that's that's amazing. Well, you know, it's it's a matter of practice 
And, you know, that's why they, they have a Toastmasters group. I used to belong to Toastmasters a long, long time ago. And that was, it was ner- nervous to start with. I wasn't a great public speaker and I wasn't trained as a public speaker. But, you know, when you get around like-minded people and they're all supportive, you get yeah. better over time. It's, and it's a matter of practicing, practicing your craft and practicing with speaking or practice performing and, or practicing, you know, you know getting to know people. That's another a gift that some people need to practice is when you yeah. see a stranger, how do you how do you approach a, a total stranger sitting on a park bench or whatever? How would you how would you get to know that person? Well, it's really pretty simple, really. If you sit down and find a way to connect with that person and just start up a conversation about something that you even see as in common or whether you're both looking at the same thing and say, well, isn't that pretty? What do you think about that? And soon as as, as you begin a conversation, then you can introduce yourself. Well, I'm Dave Combs. How, how are you? Where are you from? You know, it's it's you yep. can strike up a conversation and get to know people. And I think that there's too much isolation in this world. There's too many people walking down the, green, the Greenway with their nose on their their cell phone all the time mm-hmm. and their earbuds in, so that says, "Don't talk to me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm listening to music or something." That's mm-hmm. not very good for communication and getting to know people. So we need to get out of our shells and and get to know other people and introduce yourself around and who knows who you'll meet and what will happen as a result. I agree with that. All right. Well, I appreciate you so much for coming on the Boot Alchemist podcast. And this was just a marvelous show. I'm so grateful. And everybody, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, support us and be blessed and be safe. Thank you.